one more time to you guys. Uh, there was a long night in October when we were held captive. By that time, we'd been in the jungle for about five months, and we were getting to know the guys holding us, sort of learning their stories. Some said that they were coerced into becoming Abu Sayyaf members. You know, if a band of 30 Abu Sayyaf with their guns and machetes came through your village and asked for three volunteers, it's pretty likely that you would come up with three volunteers to send with, with them rather than to make these mujahid, these holy warriors, angry because everybody'd heard the stories of what happened if you didn't comply with the Abu Sayyaf that came through your village. Massacres, beheadings, looting. One kid had spent some time with Martin. I can't even remember his name right now, which bothers me a little bit. This kid was probably about 18 years old, and his father was a poor fisherman. He had no education, but he fell in love with a girl in a neighboring Muslim village. And in their culture, the guy pays the dowry, the bride price, and the family had asked for 50,000 pesos, $1,000 or so, which might be a lot for some of us here in America to come up with. But how much more this kid, whose family had nothing, so he decided to join the Abu Sayyaf in hopes that he would be around when a ransom payment was made and he could get his share of the money and go get married to his sweetheart. This particular night, we had heard the military was near, so we had mobiled long into the night. We walked till 3.30 or 4 in the morning, and we were just exhausted. We lay down in a field of grass to get some rest. There was dew on the grass. It was wet, but we didn't care. We would have laid anywhere at that point. Suddenly, the sky lit up with a bright light, almost like daylight, and a parachute opened up, and a light floated to the ground right beside us. Anyone watching could have seen our whole group. Well, Martin leaned towards me, and he whispered, Oh, no, they found us. That was a flare. They were just confirming that we were here. And I expected us to get up and keep moving, because one of the unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military was they never fought at night. But no one moved. We couldn't go on. We were too tired, and we lay there the rest of the night. Early the next morning, just at dawn, we heard the rumble of what they called six-bys, six-by-sixes, huge trucks with flatbeds on the back, and we knew they were full of soldiers. And we got up and began moving out of this sheltered area towards a big field to go cross into the jungle area. And within minutes... We heard someone over in the trees yell, There they are! Hoy! It's the Abu Sayyaf! And the guns started blaring. Well, this is it, I thought, as we ran and dropped and ran and dropped. Our guards would tell us when to run, when to drop. There was automatic gunfire everywhere. The pops of the rocket launchers, thumps might be a better word to describe that sound. People yelling, the smell of gunpowder. And somehow we made it across that field and reached the edge of the woods and got behind some big, huge, massive rocks. And little by little, the group started um, getting together as we ran down the trail into the jungle. And when we stopped an hour or so later for a rest, I heard that that kid, whose name I can't remember, was killed in the gun battle, shot in the gut with a 57 mortar.
I was devastated. Here was this kid. He just wanted to get married, entering eternity without God. And I didn't want to think about it, but I couldn't help but think about it. And the horrible situation that we were in and these kids were in and how it kept going from bad to worse for us. And I was so scared and depressed and I just sat there and I bawled. And then I started thinking, Gracia, you need to get yourself together because we're going to start walking again soon. So I started to thank God for all the good things he'd done for us that day. We were still alive. We weren't wounded. I had lost my big black burqa-type headdress that they were forcing me to wear that was so oppressive. I just hated it. It had fallen somewhere out on the field as we were running and dropping, and I could feel the wind in my hair again. And I wonder how many of you might have been praying for us in that moment. I wonder if you were asking God to encourage our hearts in whatever situation we found ourselves in, and I never want to pass up the opportunity to say thank you. Thank you for praying for us. Sitting there cross-legged on the ground, rehearsing God's goodness to us in that moment gave me the strength to go on. It reminded me of a faithful God. Maybe you're in a hard place today. During your hardship, please know that God has not abandoned you. No matter what your situation is today, you are not alone. Listen to the word of God for you today. My grace is sufficient for you. Listen to the word of God for you today. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We sang over and over, all things work for good to those who love God. Somehow God takes what happens to you in your life, and he mushes it all together, and somehow it works together for good and for his glory. Listen to the word of God for you today. I will never leave you or forsake you. When you're in an awful situation, look up. Keep trusting the one who made you and is working all things together for good for you. People sometimes ask, what was the hardest thing about being a hostage? The hardest thing for me was I saw what I was really like. In one swift moment in time, everything I had except Martin was taken away from me. And when everything's gone and you're in an uncomfortable position, you see what's really in your heart. I was born into a loving Christian family. I became a believer in Jesus at an early age. I married this terrific guy who had an incredible gift of piloting airplanes, and we decided we wanted to make a difference in the world. So we packed up and we left the American dream, and we went to the Philippines where Martin flew food and medicine and cargo and people into some of the most primitive places in the world, and I was a pretty good person. Thought I was anyway, but in the jungle, I came face to face with a gracia I didn't want to see. I saw a me that I didn't even want to believe existed. I saw a hateful gracia. There were days I hated those guys for what they were doing to us, for the pain they were causing our family. I saw a covetous gracia when we were starving, and I saw someone with food, and they ate it, and they didn't share it with us. I coveted what they had. I was filled with envy at them. I saw a despairing Gracia. Nobody cares about us anymore. This has gone on for so long, everyone's forgotten us. 
I saw a faithless Gratia. Here is a journal entry that I scribbled one day on some borrowed paper using a pen that barely worked, and this is not pretty. This was a very hard day for me. Why does God keep me here to suffer day after day? I got almost hysterical in the afternoon. Martin tells me not to give up. I've tried to be a good hostage and be patient, and where has it gotten me? Eight and a half months and still here. God is pleased to have me suffer, and I'm tired of it. Hebrews 4.12 says, God's word is a discerner that looks at our hearts and exposes us for what we really are. Nothing in all creation can hide from him. Everything's open and exposed before his eyes. And we might look together on the outside. And we might have a whole lot of props that keep life going well for us. Here in America, we've got lots of props, don't we? We've got lovely families and beautiful homes and careers and money. But God sees what we are on the inside. But God's good. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust and he loves us and he's on our side when we're weak and we're needy and God didn't wait for me to get my act together there in the jungle. Even as I complained at him for keeping us there for so long, he started to work in my heart. I asked Martin one day, where is the love, the joy, the peace, the contentment, you know, all those things that are supposed to characterize believers in Jesus, where are those things? Because I'm looking at myself, and I see the bad and the worse, and there is no good. And Martin said, love, joy, peace. Those aren't things you can make happen in your own heart. Those are gifts from the Holy Spirit of God. Let's ask for them. Well, I had tried and failed to find those things in myself for months. And we started to pray and ask God to work good things in us. And it seems like we were either running for our lives from the military for days and nights on end, totally exhausted, or we were in what we thought was a safe place, and we were hiding out, and we were laying low, and we were totally bored. And every once in a while during those days and weeks of boredom, a magazine or something to read would make its way into camp, and we loved that because it gave us something to do. We especially liked Reader's Digest. We would read them till they fell apart. I would read them aloud to Martin. He would read them aloud to me, you know, the little short stories. We liked the jokes. And one day Martin read this one to me. It's called Writer's Block. Having encouraged her class of 11-year-olds to use descriptive language in the story she just asked them to write, my wife was disappointed when one boy used the adjective big to describe a castle. She asked the boy to be a bit more creative and told him to rewrite the sentence. Minutes later, he was back at her desk. This time, the sentence read, I went into the castle, which was big. And when I say big, I mean big. <laughs> well, we laughed, too. Um, a day or so later, Martin said, Gracia, I've been thinking about that joke and about something Jesus said. He said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom... Be the servant of all. And I think when he said all, he meant all. He didn't mean all but the bad guys holding you hostage. And I watched Martin start to serve those guys. There was this one kid, 57. That probably wasn't really his name, but that's what we called him, 57. His job was to carry the M57 through the jungle. And M57 is heavy weaponry. It's a four or five foot long metal tube. 
and during a gun battle, they had this tripod thing that they would put it on, and they would put the mortar in the front and shoot it, you know, in our case, at the military. Well, 57 was always in a bad mood. I told Martin, I called him 57, because for 57 days in a row, he'd been in a bad mood. One day, we were in a gun battle. Um, we had some casualties, and so did the military. The Abu Sayyaf killed a medic, a point man, and a radio man, which meant we gained a medical bag, a weapon, and a radio. Well, the next day, when nobody was looking, we sort of went through that medical bag, and we sort of lifted some things that we thought we were going to need in the future, some pain reliever, some antibiotics, some anti-diarrhea medicine. And we hid that away amongst our stuff. Well, we learned that 57 suffered from headaches. That's why he was always in a sour mood. And every time we saw him start to rub his temples, Martin would take him some of our stash of pain reliever. You know that kid's attitude towards us changed totally. Not long after that, they sent 57 out on a striking force. A striking force is a group of 10 or 15 guys who they would send to another area of the island we were on to wreak some havoc in order to keep the attention away from our group. And we never knew if we would see them alive again. Things didn't always go well for them. When 57 came back to camp, he was all smiles when he saw Martin. He gave him that two-cheeked Muslim greeting. As we prayed... God began giving us the victories within ourselves that we were asking him for. He used everyday occurrences to show us their neediness and their end. Like a conversation I had one day with Nadim. Nadim was young. Most of the guys were young in our group. He was 16, 18 years old, and he spoke enough English so we could communicate a little bit with him. One of the requirements of a Muslim is they're supposed to read their Quran every day, but when the Abu Sayyaf would read their Quran, they didn't read it silently to themselves like you and I would read a book. They read it aloud, only they didn't just read it. They had this beautiful sing-song, haunting minor key chant that they did, and one would start reading, and they would all think, oh, I haven't done my Quran reading today, and they would all start in different chapters, different verses, different tunes. I called it choir practice. I kind of figured if the military really wanted to find us and rescue us, they just needed to open their ears during Quran reading. One day after Nadim was finished, I asked him, hey, what did you just read? And his eyes lit up. He said, oh, I just read my favorite psalm. I said, really? What does it say? He said, I don't know. It's in Arabic, and I don't speak Arabic. I was shocked. I said, Nadim, you're reading words you don't understand? The reason it was his favorite psalm is he'd read it so many times, he didn't have to think about it anymore when he read it. I said, you know what you need to do? You need to get a Quran that's been translated into your dialect, and then you'll know what you're reading. He said, oh, oh no, ma'am. Then it would be corrupted. And I realized that Nadim is basing his whole life and eternity on a book he's never read and is not likely to read. How's Nadim going to hear the gospel without a preacher? We need some preachers. Some people willing to go to the hard places. Oh, duh. 
Maybe that's why we were there in the first place, to be a witness to some lost guys. Do we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest as long as it doesn't inconvenience me and mess up my comfortable life? Here's a quote I found on Facebook, of all places, by a famous missionary, C.T. Studd, who could have had a comfortable life playing world-class cricket in England, but instead chose hard places. He said, Some people like to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Working within a yard of hell is not going to be a pleasant place. There will be lots of opposition there, but we need some people willing to go to the hard places, and hard places is what's left in the world. Maybe a people group would be classified as hard to reach because they're isolated. They say there are some 2,000 language groups in our world who've never had anyone in, in the world come into their world and tell them anything. They don't know the basics of clean drinking water, much less the basics of the gospel. Working in hard places is what New Tribe's mission does. For 72 years, NTM has worked in isolated villages, and there's still a lot to do. The job has to be done. The last tribe, the last man, and we need quality people to help us take the gospel there. BICWM is doing that very same thing too, sending people to isolated, hard-to-reach places. You know, um, God has always picked certain people to do a difficult work. I appreciate what Pastor John said earlier. I don't have to convince you with this job. God's going to pick certain of you. Do you have the faith, the courage, the urging to say, God, do you want me? Do you want to use my life? Do you want to use me to make a difference in the world? A long-term sign-me-up difference. Not to go on a short-term missions trip, but a lifelong career missionary. And to some of you, God's going to say, yes, that's what I have for you. And if God's tugging at your heart, you're in a good place this weekend. You've got Pastor John here to talk to, or me. We would love to talk with you. You're going to need specialized training for going into totally unreached areas where you'll encounter very unique barriers. I saw one of your things was global photography. Can you imagine traveling the world taking pictures? If I could take pictures, I would sign up on the spot. Um, maybe a people group would be classified as hard to reach because of their ideology. They're not going to be open to what you have to say, and it may not be a very safe place for you to live. But we need some people willing to go to the hard places. We turn on the TV every day and we see the problem with Muslims, the unrest, and we wonder where's this all going to end, don't we? God does have a plan to fix this problem. You know what it is, right? We are it. You and I are it. There is no other plan. God gave the job of reaching this world to us. And you look at the people that you're seated next to this morning and you say, well, that's a bad plan. <laughs> a few folks in Harrisburg, we can't be the plan, but we are. 
And as we're willing to be used, God will use us to accomplish his plan. There in the jungle, we started seeing the Abu Sayyaf as the needy kids that they were. My hatred was replaced with concern and love for them, contentment. Even joy began to grow in my heart as I learned to thank God for the good things I saw him doing for us every day instead of dwelling on the bad. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we'll receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it. And your need today isn't because you're being held hostage in the jungle, but your need is real. Your need is great. Your first need is to have a Savior. That's what everyone in this world needs is a Savior from their sin. And Jesus died, so you have one. The other needs. There are as many as the people in this room. Come boldly to God with your need, with what's on your heart today. He's promised to help us when we need it. Well, you guys know the rest of our story, how for months it looked like our release was right around the corner and then something would happen and negotiations would break down again and we would go back to square one again and how that went on for what seemed like forever to us. And you know how Martin died in the gun battle that rescued me, um, but I got to come home and raise my children. Can I tell you about the kids? Uh, they weren't with us when we were taken hostage. They were we left them on the island we normally lived on with our coworkers, our neighbors, and we told them we'll be home in one week. And then when we didn't come home, the State Department and our mission organization sent them home. They're grown now, as you can see. The boy on the left in the white shirt is Jeff, my oldest. He became a missionary pilot like his dad. They were in Botswana, Africa. The little girl standing on the Swing there in the pink was born in Botswana. My daughter Mindy is on the right in the white. She married a New Tribes Mission MK, a missionary kid from Bolivia, South America. And Andy's a good guy. He's uh, the youth pastor at our church right now. And the boy in the black beside me is Zachary. He's um, at Calvary Bible College in Kansas City, Missouri. Calvary is our alma mater where we met, uh, Martin and I met and uh, got married in the beautiful chapel there. And he's studying Bible and voice performance. And those are my grandchildren, y'all. And God's just been really, really good to us. And you know what my big problem is now? Because of my experience, everyone thinks I'm an expert on everything. And I get invited to speak places I don't belong. There was the FBI Victims of Crime Symposium. They gave me the whole morning. And it doesn't take long to say, I was one, and I didn't like it. I spoke at Tyson Chicken a while back. When I said yes, I thought I was going to a chicken factory. You know, people uh, with hairnets and chicken feathers flying through the air. And I had my chicken jokes all planned to tell. Uh, why did the chicken cross the street? To show the possum it really could be done. Uh, what is the chicken's least favorite day of the week? 
Friday, I heard that. <laughs> then I found out I was at the corporate headquarters of Tyson Chicken. Did you know that Tyson is the second largest producer of food, protein, worldwide? So I ditched my chicken jokes. I didn't think they were appropriate for the chief financial officer of Tyson worldwide. I've been the expert on BBC News. You know when that panel of experts gives their expert opinion? Of course, we were discussing terrorism. Next time you see a panel of experts, you can be pretty sure one of them's not an expert. But one event I was asked to do, this starts the rest of the story, and I love telling this story. Several years ago, I was invited to do a lecture series at a university in Arkansas. Well, I didn't want to do that. I'd never done anything like that before. But my uncle lives in that city, and I thought, oh, a free trip to go see my uncle. So I said yes. After I said yes, they sent me the list of the people who'd done those lecture series in years past. Lady Thatcher, Henry Kissinger, the president of Russia. Gorbachev had been there, y'all. I was in big trouble, but God was in this lecture series invitation. The first event of the several days was a banquet given for donors to the school and alumni. And I sat at the head table with the student who'd planned the banquet. And as we began eating our salad, he said to me, my dad and your husband were really good friends growing up. And I thought, this kid is mistaken. Because Martin didn't grow up in America. Martin grew up in the Philippines. And then this kid told me how his father had grown up in the Philippines, that he and Martin had been dorm mates together at boarding school at Faith Academy in Manila. Well, that explained that. And that his grandfather and grandmother had done Bible translating for Wycliffe Bible translators. I said, oh, what language did they work in? He said, Taosug. What? Taosug was the language that many of the Abu Sayyaf spoke, and I knew this conversation was meant to be. And I got his grandparents' contact information, and it took several months before I was able to meet with Seymour and Lois Ashley, a dear elderly couple. Uh, they came to visit my home in Kansas, and we had the best time talking, and they told me stories of living in the southern Philippines, and oh boy, did they have stories living in that place where it wasn't really safe to live. They told me about all the things that they had translated. And the thing that intrigued me right away was this comic book series they did. 13 comic books on the lives of the prophets. Those men that Muslims believe to be prophets. Adam, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, on through Jesus. I told them, I'd love to see those comic books. Maybe I should order a set just to get a good look, and they said, oh, those are out of print. In fact, many things, most things, that they had spent years translating, risking their lives to live on that Muslim island, were out of print, and I threw a little fit. That was not acceptable. And our foundation made it a priority to get all those things back into print. And the first thing we printed was the comic book series. We were so happy with them. They're colorful. They're beautiful. I have no idea what they say. They're in Taosug. But some of the first people to get a hold of the comic book series was an American couple that works in a maximum security prison in Manila. And they gave them out, and the guys loved them. 
They said, anything else you print, we want to read. But they said the interesting thing that's happened here in the prison is a bunch of these guys found out Gracia Burnham printed these. And they're coming to us saying, we're former Abu Sayyaf. We're the ones who held Martin and Gracia captive. I said, well, ask them their names because maybe I know them. And here came the names. Zacharias, one of the ones who on May 27 burst into our room at Dos Palmas with his M16. He was so surprised to find out that our youngest son and him had the same name, Zachary, that we would name one of our children after one of their Muslim prophets. And we just let him think that. Also in prison is Daoud, the guy that used to sit and talk with Martin when we would rest during our long days of hiking. Daoud's wife and child had died in childbirth. And since the economy is horrible in the southern Philippines, he found himself with no family, no means of support, and he joined the Abu Sayyaf almost as a career move. It was Daoud's job to carry the solar panels through the jungle. The solar panels would charge the sat phones and the cell phones so they could talk to the outside government negotiators. Martin and Daoud discussed all sorts of things from jihad to being shaheed, being martyred. They discussed Daoud's hopes and dreams until one day Daoud was just gone missing and word came back that he had gotten captured by the military when he was out doing a secret arms deal on another island. In jail also is Bashir. He was shot in the same gun battle that Martin died in, the one that led to my rescue. Bashir was unable to keep up with the group as they retreated down the river, so they left him behind in the jungle to fend for himself with 500 pesos. $10. You can't buy anything in the jungle. You can't take care of yourself. And several days later, the military found him. Gangrene had moved into his leg, and it had to be amputated. One after another, they told us of these guys that Martin and I lived with, hiked with, starved with, 23 or so of them. You know, my kids and I had been asking God to do something in the hearts of the Abu Sayyaf. But even more than that, we'd been asking for some contact with them, some means of reaching them. But I didn't know, number one, how could I ever find any Abu Sayyaf? Number two, what could I do if I did find some of them? And here, God had just done it. All we did was print some comic books. He's even worked out some ministers to live right there in the prison. In maximum security, there are 11 prison pastors that Will and Joni work with. They're prisoners who've come to know the Lord, and they've sort of gone through a seminary-type training, and Will and Joni wrote and asked me if I'd be willing to donate books in the presence of my enemies to these guys, because they sort of knew my story, but not really, and I sent the books, and their response after they read them was, if Gracia can forgive the Abu Sayyaf, after they did such awful things to her and Martin, we should forgive the Abu Sayyaf and begin working with them. Because you see, up until then, the Abu Sayyaf were shunned in the prison. Everybody hated them. They kept them at arm's length because they were terrorists. They were the really bad guys. And these prison pastors began specifically praying for and ministering to the Abu Sayyaf and the other Muslims in the prison. 
this couple comes home every other summer um, to America, and we get together and we plan the next few years, ways to show the love of Christ to these guys. And I have such good stories about that. They were here in August, and we got together in Ohio and had the best time. They always bring me gifts. They brought me dried mangoes this year. Uh, one year they came, they brought me this T-shirt that some of the guys have signed. This says, Inmate Maximum. I said, Will and Joni, what am I supposed to do with that T-shirt? You can't wear it to the mall. Yeah. <laughs> so we just plan things um, to plant seeds in the prison. And sometimes we don't even know if they're good plans or not. Maybe they're stupid plans. But we just ask God to bless our meager efforts. I'm supporting several of the poorest of the poor so they have some means of buying soap in the prison so they can take a bath or wash their clothes. And I could spend an hour telling you these stories, but um, awesome things are happening in the prison. These guys are asking for the scriptures in their own dialects. Some of them are going to Bible studies. So far, four of them have come to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. They think maybe a fifth. Um, that they haven't really been able to talk with yet. He keeps just saying, Kuya Will, I need to talk with you about some dreams I've been having. Um, one of them that has come to know the Lord is a very violent man with over 20 counts of murder against him. A new person in Christ, a brother in the Lord, and we really can't believe what's happening, and um, it's not over till it's over, is it? And we just keep praying, and I wonder if you would want to start praying for these guys. When you think of me and my story, pray for them, especially for Zacharias, who's very hard and resistant towards anything having to do with the gospel. Had I known when we were going through our hard year in the jungle that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience, I think the days would have been easier to bear. And I could kick myself now and say, would it have not been enough to trust a good God with the days of my life? Can we begin to believe that God takes us into hard situations not to crush us, but so that we can learn to see his hand and learn to trust him when he's doing a good work? And God's work is good. It's always good. Whether we understand it or not, whether we necessarily like it or not, and I've been encouraged that there cannot be a harvest without seed planters. And maybe planting seeds isn't always fun. Maybe it's downright uncomfortable for you, and you don't see any fruit for your labors. You might wonder why you were called to plant seeds, because you're not even good at it. But all of a sudden, you see what God's doing. And I've been reminded the seed we planted in the jungle wasn't wasted. Others are reaping what we sowed ever so long ago. God's almighty. He can do anything. So keep planting those seeds, my friend. Keep on when you don't see any fruit, when you feel like giving up, when you don't know what you're doing. Just keep going. It's God that's going to do the work on down the road. You know, if I were God, I would not have chosen me to go through a year in the jungle. I'm a city girl. I don't even like to camp. I would have chosen someone big and strong who'd had survival training and who I knew would handle things really well. And the other puzzling thing that God did 
in our story is the strong one, Martin, died. And the weak one came home to tell the story and have the ministry. Don't you think God would have chosen the strong one to do that? God's ways aren't our ways. And I have to wonder if he chose to make me this huge object lesson that God uses weak things. Several places in scripture it talks about how God doesn't choose the wise and the mighty. He often chooses the weak things. And I wonder if he does that. So when people see what happens, they say, wow, God did that. Everybody knows that I did not have the strength to live for a year in the jungle. Wow, God did that. Everybody who knows me basically knows that I am a ditzy blonde and I don't know what I'm doing. But when I travel and speak, people say, wow, look what God's doing. And I want to encourage you this morning. If God can use me, this weak vessel, he can use anyone. He can use you. You just need to make yourself available for him to use. And I thank you for having me today. God bless you. After the first service, I got up here and I said, wow. And I thought, surely I could come up with something just a little more eloquent than that. Wow. Uh, we're happy to tell you that you can come back tonight at 6 p.m. We'll be having yet another time of uh, gracious sharing. And we're so looking forward to hearing more of her story and uh, more of the challenge and more of the encouragement. We hope that you'll come tonight. Um, at the end of our time tonight, we'll, have, we'll end with some refreshments and fellowship time, and you might have a chance uh, to, to chat with her, have her sign your book or whatever. So we hope you come back. We hope to see you. Uh, shifting gears just a bit, uh, I was thinking about our church and how love is one of the characteristic traits of our church family. We love one another in our words of encouragement, our deeds of service to one another, our teaching one another, our hugs, our prayers for each other. And I just want to pause and for a tangent say, um, just say thank you uh, for your prayers and your love for me and my family during these days. <clears throat> but we have 18 people, soon to be 20, who aren't able to be here with us regularly, but who are serving the Lord and building God's kingdom in nine nations around the world. We have their faces and their descriptions in our bulletin. We hope that you'll take it home and, and pray through it, not just today, not just this week, but all year long. Pray for these people. And today we have a chance to give uh, a missions offering, to give toward them and their work. We have an opportunity to help these dear brothers and sisters feel our hug, feel our love, feel our support, know that we're behind them. So in a moment, we're gonna invite you to come. There's a basket on the altar table. The, uh, somebody's gonna come and play music. I'm not sure who. Oh, Kevin's coming to play. And um, 
we'll invite you to stand and come as you're ready to give. Um, let's, let's pray for a moment. Lord, we're so, um, so moved by your work in our lives and in our hearts, and we're so anxious to hear um, about how people's lives are changed here and around the world. And we thank you that we have workers from our family here who have gone out and are sharing the good news of Jesus. So this morning we pray for Mark and Angie and for Chris and Marlis, for Jen and Hona, for Zach, for Dan and Karen, for Amy, for Joseph and Yvette, for Dan and Becky, and Jesse and Charity, and Daru and Joyce. And we pray for Ryan and Christy as they prepare to go. Uh, Lord, we, we ask for your strength in each of them, that today they would feel um, an even greater sense of your presence and of your leading, that you would guide them step by step, uh, moment by moment, day by day, give them words to speak that bring light and life uh, in the darkness around the world. Lord, we ask for fruit from their labor. And we pray, Lord, that through our offering and our giving today, that they would indeed feel loved, that they'd be reminded that they're loved by their church. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come, let's give.
I would like to say three things as we end this service. The first one is, in the first service, uh, a person came by and said, I would hate to be the person who has to preach after this next week. And I said, yes, I pity the poor sucker that's got to do that. <laughs> Pray for that poor man. <laughs> Secondly, uh, a new person, Jack, came to me and said, after hearing the stories and, and hearing about the missionaries and, what's, and feeling what's going on today, he said, remind them that this is the joy. What, part of what's going on here today and part of what you've heard about, this is the joy that D Jesus died for. This was the joy that was set before him. Praise the Lord for that. And finally, the last thing that I'm reminded of is the difference between the world and the body of Christ, especially in dealing with Muslims and things like that. The world's weapons are guns and M16s and F15s. Ours is truth and grace and forgiveness and love. The world says, when it looks at the radical Muslims, destroy them, kill them. And Jesus says, love them and save them. That's the difference. That's the difference. Would you please stand? Again, I remind you, you can get uh, books out in the lobby and talk to Gracia. And uh, please take that opportunity to do so. And again, thank you so much, Gracia. She's already out there. Thank, thank you. So, <laughs> let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray your blessings, Lord, on our missionaries. We pray your blessings, Lord, on Gracia. We pray, Lord, that you bless those out in the vineyard all over this world. Bless them, whether brethren in Christ or not. Bless them. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's people say, amen, amen and amen. Go in peace. <laughs>